Welcome to the Sunday Preaching Podcast of The Point Church, located in Perdido Key, Florida. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Good morning. Good to see y'all today. And uh, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Colossians. We're still there in that first chapter, and we'll be for another week. And um, as we talk about uh, Christ alone, and today we're going to be talking about the preeminence of Christ. I want you to know this is a passage of Scripture that I always get real anxious about preaching because I so love to this passage of Scripture. Uh, we are looking today at a passage of Scripture that is really just basic to everything that we believe. It is who we are. This is perhaps the, the greatest passage of Scripture on our Lord in any place in the New Testament. And uh, so we're, you know, uh, looking at this together, talking today about the preeminence of Christ. You know, there are some people that I, I just really lean heavily on as far as study is concerned. And you hear me repeat, many times I will quote Dr. Warren Wiersbe. He's someone that has really ministered to me through the years and got to hear him a few times in person. And, and uh, just, just uh, many of you probably have studied his work and you might hear me use his name quite often. And also there's a, a younger preacher. Of course, Dr. Wiersbe is with the Lord now. A younger preacher that is here in our state is H.B. Charles. And I love to hear H.B. Charles preach. And I love to read his things. And, and, and so I lean very heavily on these guys, especially today. As I share with you today, H.B. Uh, Charles has said, I shared, uh, read something of his uh, on this subject uh, a few years ago and really touched my life. And so I've drawn very heavily on that. I want you to uh, look with me, uh, beginning reading in the, fir- in the 15th verse of chapter 1. He says that he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God, just lead us today. May his Holy Spirit guide us as we share this word today. We've been looking and talking about a man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras had been led to the Lord by Paul in Ephesus, and uh, and we believe that Epaphras was the pastor of the church there in Colossae, and uh, he had reported to Paul about the faith of these people, about their walk and their complete commitment to Jesus, to their love for Christ uh, there in that church. But he also, as we've already learned, reported some very disturbing news, and that is that there were false teachers there, and they were promoting error about the person of Christ. You see, church, I want you to understand that we must get Jesus right. We must understand who Jesus is because if we don't get Jesus right, 
then it's like dominoes falling. Nothing is right about our theology. We must get him right and who he is. And so they were teaching error that, um, uh, that really uh, was about the person of who Christ is. Uh, they were preaching that Christ was prominent, yet not preeminent. And you know, that is something that we see in our culture today. Jesus being given a prominent place. Oh yes, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great man and all those kind of things, but not preeminent, not really God. The false teachers were saying that Jesus was one of many emanations from God. And, and in the process, what they were doing is they denied both the humanity and the deity of Christ. And you see, Jesus is both man and God, right? That's who Jesus is. And so they were denying the humanity. They were denying the deity of Jesus. And you see, this error about the person of Christ had opened doors of confusion about the gospel. It had opened doors of confusion about the church and about the Christian life. And various isms had rose up, had infiltrated the church, and, and, and none of these false teachings were promoting any kind of rival to Christ. Like we might think that a false teacher would say, well, there's some God here. He's better than Jesus. And you know, it, you need to follow him or whatever. They were not promoting a rival to Christ. What they were doing is they were just simply presenting something alongside of Jesus. And what they were saying is that Jesus is not enough, that you need more than Jesus. And when Paul received this report, he was moved to write this letter and he exalted in this letter the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ. That's the reason for the title of this series that I already told you, and that is Christ Alone. You know, our societies really, they really get upset when you talk about Jesus. You ever notice that? You can talk about God, you can talk about different things, but you, when you start talking about Jesus, people get kind of upset about it. They get a little, they get a little antsy about it. It's kind of like, you know, this uh, C.J. C. J. Stroud, who's the quarterback for the Houston Texans, a few a week or so ago, he was being interviewed after a ball game, and he thanked uh, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then he went on and said some other things. And uh, I think sometimes when that's live, it kind of catches them off guard a little bit, and you can tell, they, well, let's move on here, you know. And, and when they posted that, when NBC posted it, they edited that part out. Now, they've come under some heat because of that, you know, and and uh, but they edited it out. And and why would they edit out Jesus? Well, you know, Shane Pruitt, uh, I see a lot of uh, quotes by him. He and this was part of one of his quotes. He said, the culture, our culture is literally terrified of Jesus. You see, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. It's exclusive. There's no name given under heaven whereby men must be saved other than that of Jesus, right? And so people get upset about that, and, and they don't want you to talk about Jesus. But Paul is telling us it's all about Jesus. It's all about it. Well, Colossians is what we call a polemical letter, and that is it is refuting, uh, you know, various opinions uh, and principles of, of another. So Paul in this does not yet, does not really begin with refuting the errors. 
But what he begins with is a declaration of the truth. You see, the best way to deal with error is to quote, is to speak the truth, is to share what is the truth, is to share the gospel. I shared with the with the first uh, in the first service this morning that many people, you know, through the years would come up to me and they say, Mike, I, you know, I really appreciate that you preach the gospel and you preach the truth. And I'll say, well, I don't have anything else to preach. That's what I got to preach, right? I don't have anything else to preach but the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at this text, we are looking at what many people, most scholars, and I feel is really the most, one of the most important statements about Jesus Christ in all the New Testament. And scholars tell us that it may have been a hymn that the early church sung in their worship. This is what we're reading here. H.B. Charles says that, he says that if this text does not derive from the worship of the church, it should result in the worship of the church, right? And when we see who Jesus is, it ought to call forth our worship. So Paul declares and he defends the most essential truth of what is our, the, our historic Christian faith, and that is Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. You hear what I'm saying? Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. And so he then gives to us two reasons why we should live and minister and witness with confidence in the preeminence of Christ. And that is the two points that I want to share with you today. And the first one is this. He tells us that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He tells us that in verse 15. Here's what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, when he says that, what he's telling us that we know that God is invisible. We can't see God here, right? We can't see God. In fact, John tells us in John 4, 24, writing what Jesus said, he said, God is spirit. In 1 Timothy 1, 17, Paul says that the king of the age is immortal, invisible, the only God. In 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen him. Why would you see? Because he's invisible. We don't see God, except we see in the scriptures, we see some things that occurred, uh, what were called a theophany or theophanies that occurred there where God appeared. The one thing that we know about theophanies is they were temporary. It was just simply sudden appearances of God uh, and, and not what was his enduring presence in a, in a certain place or, or object. It was things like visions and dreams and and voices where, uh, you know, God spoke from heaven, that, and this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God appeared to Abraham. God spoke to, to Moses out of the burning bush. Those are theophanies. Those are appearances of God. But yet Paul affirms that Christ is the image of God. Now, that word image there is where we get our word icon from, an image that translates that word. It, it, it is a, a, a representation or a manifestation of a thing. Now, we are told in Exodus 20, one of the commandments in verse 4, it says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And that's the reason why when you come into a church like this church, the Baptist church, you're not going to find any icons in here. 
We, we don't have any statues in here. We have some crosses that, that tell us what Jesus did for us, but we don't have any icons in here. He told us not to do that. Yet in Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God created him. Male and female, he created the, them. Now, what that means, folks, is that humans are created in the image of God. That means you're in the image of God. I'm in the image of God. Every person, whatever that low down, no good for nothing person that we think is that kind of person, they are created in the image of God. And that's why we should love them. And that's why we should reach out to them. And because they are created in the image of God. What does that mean? That means that we are not, we don't look like God. It just means that we are rational beings with intellect and emotion and, and volition or will. Uh, but, but yet we do not bear his image essentially. What I mean by that, we do not share in his eternality. God is God and we are not, right? We're not immutable. God is immutable. Uh, you know, we change all the time. God doesn't change at all. Uh, even though we may think we know everything, we don't. God's um, he is omniscient, right? He knows everything. He, he is omnipotent. He has all power. We don't. He is omnipresent. We can only be in one place at one time. We do not bear God's image morally. God is holy, and we are not, folks. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But I want you to know, I want you to hear me, church, there is one who bears God's image essentially and morally. He tells us here in verse 15, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus represents God. In John 1, 18, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God, you know, Jesus made the Father known to us. The word that is used there is the word that we use in the study of Scripture, and that is what we call exegesis in what it simply means to bring out of. When we study Scripture, we're bringing out. We're looking at what the Bible says. And, and I, I, I remind you, just as I did earlier, that when we look at the Word of God, the Bible says what it says and means what it means. It still means what it meant way back there. It's the same thing. And our quest is to discover what it means, not necessarily what it means to me. That's not the question. The question is, what does it mean? And when I find out what it means, then I adjust my life accordingly. Whatever God is directing us to, to do. You, you see, to see what God is truly like, then we have to look at Jesus. Because as uh, the writer of Hebrews said in 1.3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, Jesus manifests God. You know, when they were having that, that supper in that upper room, that what we call the Last Supper, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. You, you remember what Jesus said? He said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me or show us the Father? 
In other words, if you want to know what Jesus, what God looks like, then you just look at Jesus, right? If you want to know who God is, you just look at Jesus. You ever heard somebody say, of speaking of someone, they say of a, maybe a boy, they say, you know, he's a spitting image of his father. Now, we know what that means. That means he, he really favors his dad, right? But he's not his dad. He's not his dad. You could never say that when you've seen that boy, you've seen his father. But you see, Jesus claims more than a resemblance to God, he declares himself to be God in the flesh. I can't tell you how important that is. He declares that he is God in the flesh. Warren Wiersbe says, he says, nature reveals the existence, power, and wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the very essence of God to us. It is only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God is revealed perfectly. That's what we see there in verse 15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul is not saying that Christ is a created being. If someone would say, well, look at there, look at there, that, he's a created being. You know, some of our cults, the Jehovah's Witness would say that. He's a created being. That's a, he came along, God created him. If you were saying that, it would violate the entire context of what we're looking at here. The firstborn does not refer to first in order. You know, if that were true, in a sense, Cain is the firstborn in creation, right? But the, the firstborn is used here to speak of rank. That is like the first son in a family. He has the rank. When Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he's not claiming that Jesus is the first thing that God created. He is declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation. He is the rank of over all creation. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. We see that he created the world in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the creator of all things. And, and you see, what is his relationship to creation? Well, he is the one who caused it. He's the one who caused it. It says, for by him all things were created. Who made the world? I mean, who created this universe? Who flung those stars into space? Who created you and who created me? I want you to know that everything that is made is stamped made by Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was made by Jesus, right? I was made by him. He is the originator, architect, and builder of all things. Jesus created this, the physical world. That, you know, that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about on earth and visible. I want all you got to do is just look around. You go outside in that beautiful day we've got out there today, and you look around, and everything that you see was made by him, and we should praise him for it. Amen? And glory should be attributed to him, not to some kind of a series of angelic emanations or to some kind of impersonal mother nature or some atheistic principle of evolution. Jesus created all things. Jesus has also created the, the spiritual world. This is what Paul means here when he talks that about that is in heaven and, in, and the invisible. And he lists all these 
this spirit beings that were created by him. I don't have time to go into all this, but this is what he says. It talks about the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things are that he refers to here, these spiritual beings in the unseen world, all of those point to Christ as the creator of every one of them. And you remember Paul, who's writing, he's, he's writing here to these, these Christians at Colossae about these false teachers and their, what was their claim? Their claim is that Jesus was an emanation from God, that he was one who derived from generations of angels. And Paul said he didn't derive from angels. He created the angels. He created the angels. Even the evil angels aligned with Satan are under the sovereign authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he the, he the, the, the cause of it, but he's a manager of creation. All things were created through him. John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And he's also the purpose of creation. Everything is moving to Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. The created order exists for Christ. It points to him. Whatever exists, exists for his pleasure, for his purpose, and for his praise. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything was created for him. And then also, also as we look, he's the sustainer of it. He's the sustainer of this world. He tells us there in verse 17, that he not only is he before all things, he says, and in him all things hold together. Christ is before and after creation. When, when this universe began, Jesus was already there. That's what John writes in John 1, 1, where he says simply, in the beginning was the word and word was with God and the word was God. Now, those unbelieving Jews, when they heard Jesus speak about Abraham and speak about him intimately, they thought, how can this guy that's almost this little around 30 years old, how can he speak intimately about Abraham who was centuries before him? And the truth of the matter is, Jesus was there when he was created, right? In fact, John 8, 58 says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I will. He was there. He created it all. Listen, atheistic evolution, the Big Bang Theory, needs no creator. You don't have to have a creator. He created it all. Uh, you know, I never have understood how anybody could think everything was a Big Bang and it just all came together like we have it. Man, that takes more faith than I got to believe that. If matter is made up of space, who holds all of it together? I mean, scientists struggle to answer that question, but there is an answer. How does all this stuff hold together? Colossians 1.17, he's the one who holds it all together. He's the one. Jesus did not create this world and then let it just kind of run on its own. That's what deists believe. Jesus is the creator and he is the stainer of this world. 
I mean, why is it that the, the world is a cosmos and not chaos? And why is it that the earth remains close enough to the sun that we don't freeze and far enough from the sun that we don't burn up? And, and why is it, friends, that, that the sun keeps rising in the east and going down in the west? And why is it that we have winter, spring, and summer, and fall, and they continue to pass in their seasons? And why is it that we have flowers that, that, that bud and bloom and fade and then fall away? It's because Jesus holds all that together. He's the sustainer. Jesus holds it all together, and not what is true of this world is also true of our lives. The truth of the matter is, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether a person acknowledges Jesus or not, the only reason their life is simply not falling completely apart is because Jesus holds all things together, all of it. And Jesus is preeminent in creation. And then real quickly, he is preeminent over the church. Who's in charge? Uh, this tells us, doesn't it? This is what tells us. In verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, now Paul gives here three titles to Christ. He says that, that he is the head of the body. The body. You know, the, the, when you go to the New Testament, it really does not yet necessarily define the church as much as it describes the church. In fact, when you see in the New Testament, the church is referred to as an army. We as a church are referred to as the bride, the flock, the family, the temple. But when you really look at what is the primary, the primary metaphor for the church is a body. Uh, you, the church, the point is the body of Christ, right? The body. A and the picture of the body teaches that the church then is a living organism. It's not some kind of dead organization. It's a living organism. And, and here it is used uh, to emphasize the total dependence of the body on the head. We have to have the head. Because anything without a head is dead, right? It's dead. You know, you've you probably heard people talk about, you know, if you were raised in, a, in the country. I was raised in the country. I never saw this. I think my wife did. But you ever seen a chicken with its head cut off? And you say somebody, you, somebody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off, Right? It's running around. There's no purpose. There's nothing. It's just running around and nothing going on. It's because the head is gone. Folks, I want to tell you, I've seen a lot of churches like that. Where there's no head. And, 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 the, and the other thing is, is that anything that has more than one head is a monster. And when we, when we give the church more than one head, it's literally a monster, folks. Jesus Christ is the one and only true head of the church. And he is also the beginning. Revelation 22 and 13 it says, Jesus declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he tells us that he is the firstborn from the dead. That's the second time Paul calls Christ the firstborn. In verse 15, he calls him the firstborn of all creation. Here in verse 18, he calls him the firstborn from the dead. Now, we know that Jesus was not the first person raised from the dead. 
Jesus himself raised people from the dead, didn't he? But you see, those were what we would call resuscitations, not resurrections. Because I'm telling you, when you're resurrected, you won't ever die again. But you're resuscitated. All the resuscitations, they died again eventually, and they're still dead. Revelation 1, 17 and 18 says, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, now why does he assign these sovereign titles to Christ? Why does he do it? Well, he tells us this. He says that in everything he might be preeminent. That's why. That in everything he might be preeminent. And the term here, this, this term is, is, is only used here. And it means that Jesus is the sovereign one who is to have first place. He is the one who is in full control. He has final authority in everything. He, he is the he have first place in creation, first place in the church, and he's to have first place in your life and my life. And so, folks, when we get him first place in our lives, we get him first place in the church, then things really do happen good when he's first. And why is he preeminent? Because, listen, that's who he is because of the incarnation. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the incarnation, the, he, the flesh of God, God in the flesh. The Israelites dwelt in tents. The Israelites had tabernacles. They ultimately built a temple, but all of those are temporary. Even great Solomon's temple, and Solomon himself prayed in 1 Kings 8, 27. He prayed about the temple. He says, but, when, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. How much less this house I have built. No, it is only in Christ that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, right? And this is just as much a statement about God the Father as it is about Jesus. It expresses the Father's role in the incarnation. The Father chose to dwell in his Son. And John 1, 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. God dwelt in the person of Christ. Matthew 3, 17 says, God the Father declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was pleased to dwell completely, fully in his Son. And moreover, it pleased the Father that all the fullness of God was to dwell in Christ. You see, you know, some people say this thing. They'll say, well, you know what we need? We need for the Shekinah glory of God to come down. We don't need the Shekinah glory. We have Jesus, right? We don't need the Shekinah glory. We have Jesus. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, this next chapter, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Listen, the preeminence of Christ is inextricably tied to the sufficiency of Christ. And if Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, we are complete in him. There's nothing lacking our salvation. Jesus is all we need. 
because of what he did. He atoned for us. Look what he said in verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You know, when we talk about reconciliation, that assumes that there's a problem in the relationship. The relationship has been broken. It's been ruptured. It's been dislocated. That is our human predicament. That is where we are as human beings. Sin has severed our relationship and separated us from God. But God seeks to reconcile the sinner. And praise God that he does. And that's what he does to us. He reconciles us to himself. He provided the means of that reconciliation. And he tells us that in, in 1 Timothy 5, or 2, 5, and 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. For all. Just look at your Bibles there. Just look at this passage that we're looking at here today, and just look how many times that word all comes up. In verse, in verse 15, he calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. In verse 16, by him all things were created. In verse 17, and before all things in him, all things hold together. In verse 18, in everything, all things, he might be preeminent. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. And we are beneficiaries of that reconciliation, folks. We are reconciled to God. And the way that was made possible was through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he says there. Making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the only time that appears in the New Testament. In fact, Paul says much about the blood of Jesus. He says much about the cross, but this is the only place that he ever puts those two together. And, and, and I believe Paul did that as he mentions this. He is, he is emphasizing the power of the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ to accomplish everything on the cross for us, and that is why we only need Jesus. That's all we need. And so in 2 Corinthians, we see verses 20 and 21. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, that's what Jesus did for us. He reconciled us to the Father. There was a broken relationship, a ruptured relationship, and he reconciled us to the Father. Now listen, what does all of that mean? Just real quick here. If Jesus is preeminent, if he was who he said he was, if he did what he said he did, if he is who he says he is, then what does that mean for us? What that means, and this is what really makes all the world get real nervous when you start talking about Jesus, because if Jesus is who he says he is, if he did what he said he did, if he is everything, then that means I must bow my life to him. And that's what I did in my life. I bowed my life to him. And he took my sin. And he'll do the same for you. Have you bowed to Jesus? Listen, you may be trying to do it all on your own, but listen, you're trying to do it without the one who holds all things together. And the reason your life may be just falling apart is because you need the one who holds things together in your life. 
Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be just great. Hunky-dory, you know, as we say. It's all going to be easy sailing. It's not going to be easy sailing. It might get a little hard. Because you would stand for Christ in a world that doesn't, it gets difficult. But I'm telling you this, the benefits far outweigh anything that you go through here. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. That's what he wants to do for you. Would you bow to him today?